All right. Welcome back to another episode of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, Lindsay, and you don't have to endure me alone tonight because John is in the house. John, can you say hello? Hi, Lindsay. Don't be nervous, John. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wearing the sound and <laughs> the sound engineer's headphones have a delay in them. So I was talking People and can't I, see what I, you're I just doing, pulled off the John. sound engineers. <laughs> when we record, let me tell you something about doing a podcast, John. <laughs> when we record, people, people that listen that aren't in the room can't see what you're doing. Fuck it. I just moved back into my regular chair. I, I couldn't do it over there. Well, so, somebody watch that computer and tell me about red lines when I'm talking. Is it redlining? Wait, redlining's bad. Do you see a lot of red? All right, I'll move. Our away. sound engineer is late. Uh, is he? Yeah, yeah. And so we're piecing this together with yeah. a couple AA batteries and some duct tape. <laughs> Sounds like a great Saturday night. All right, um, yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. So, and also we have with us Misha returning. Misha, can you say hello? Hello. And can I say Misha from BYU? Sure. Misha from BYU. And Bill McGee from Sunstone. I think this is your first time on this podcast. It is. Well, welcome. I brought all my, all my, uh, friends to the podcast to gang up on John tonight. We're going to try to get him back to church. That's the topic of the podcast this episode. <laughs> Done. Okay. So actually, no, let's talk about the news first before we get into the topic. Uh, I, again, I feel a little awkward taking over. You're just so quiet. Oh, do we want to do announcements first? Before oh, we, we should probably do announcements. Um, how is counseling um, services going, Lindsay? Truthfully, I'm a little discouraged right now, John. Yeah, tell me more, We're Lindsay. getting some good donations from people, so thank you for those people who have donated. But we are not getting uh, people enrolling in our courses we just put out our, our fall catalog and i've gotten a few people and last time we rolled it out i mean we filled up and we ran out of room and this time so let, let me tell folks out there sort of what we're doing to, to level set if you go see a counselor normally it would cost you depending on where you live in the country anywhere between say 75 to 150 dollars an hour to see a counselor um, and so what we have done at Whitefields is we've set up some um, group sessions, um, and they're not sessions where you're going to have to reveal a lot of personal information or sit on a couch. It's really to to help as a group and facilitate that group discussion on folks who are doing transition. And what do we have in our catalog for the fall, Lindsay? So we have a faith identity disruption group. We have a mixed faith couples group where we did this last year and it was, or last time and it was so popular. Two therapists, one very active Mormon, one post Mormon, and you come with your spouse who is in a similar situation. And then we're doing something different, which we actually do have interest in, which is a day long workshop that's going to be in October. Yeah. So, so you, you, you'll work with the, the, the therapist. Our cost is about for the six week session. What are we charging now? 125, 150 
per total. person. Yeah. Uh, we're breaking it down per session, so it's about twenty dollars a session, which is super super cheap. It's like cheaper than a copay. So yeah, so so normal, and there's no um, the the. We don't provide any healthcare. We're not a healthcare provider. So you work with the therapist and they're the ones who, um, you know, are your provider. But, um, yeah, yeah. What we're doing is we're basically covering the, the normal cost uh, of, of this. So it's a, it's an amazing deal in terms of healthcare costs. And Whitefields does not, Whitefields or its employees, really don't make any money off this. So this is really, we're doing it at bare bones cost. We literally don't make any money. Like, <laughs> in, in fact, the, the model that we're running right now is Whitefields is, uh, what's the word I want? Um, helping fund. That's not the word I want, but helping fund this and, and filling in the gap. So, I mean, we would like to come up with a better sustainable model where, you know, Whitefields gets like 20% down the road or something to help sustain Whitefields. But, Actually, John and I felt so passionate about this that we really wanted to use the donations to kind of, um, can't think of the word, help this, help this out. In fact, it's one of the things that this podcast funds. I say this because there's a lot of assholes on the internet, and I know this is not a surprise to anybody, but there's a lot of criticism that's levied against those out there. There are several organizations trying to provide mental health services of various degrees to service the population of people who are in transition with religion. And they're taking, not us as much as others, a lot of heat for this. Okay, when you were in the church, they have this little, this, this crafty little idea called priestcraft. And what this meant, it's brilliant. The church does some amazingly brilliant things. What this means is no one's allowed to make money off the gospel except the fucking church. They can open up buildings where they sell books and paintings and statuary and 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 jam. Jewelry, have you guys, have you guys been in Desert Book The stuff preserves and biscuits and just ties. like every fucking thing you can imagine you'd get at the mall. They can sell that stuff. But if somebody says, hey, you know, I'm a trained therapist and I want to help Mormons and identity Oh, suddenly this guy's doing priestcraft. And 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 what's what's fascinating is ex Mormons have taken this fuck tarted line of thinking with them. All right, we're gonna be making Look, a lot of money in the swear jar today. I folks. got the swear jar up. I got my wallet. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm ready to go. Like, um, so listen, therapists make money. I I hate to break this to to, to all you guys. Therapists all over the country get paid for what they do, as does everybody else. All right. That's how the system works. People don't work for free unless they have money from some other source. So criticizing therapists for charging for therapy makes you a dimwit. Or if you criticize that, all right, all right just, I'm, just, I'm just putting that out there. So that being said, we don't make any money off this. That Lindsay? also being said, I've noticed this too. I again, we talked about this before, but when John Delin came out and said how much money he made from the podcast. Which is like what he devotes hours and hours and hours John to. John Dillon does his podcast in Mormon Stories full time. And he's taking a lot of heat in his personal life for what Doing he's done. a job. And right? everybody admittedly says, like, John Dillon's podcast changed my life. And yet we still get people being like, what? He takes money? How dare he? Like... I guess we can have paid clergy at the top, but we can't have paid clergy when it comes to... 
anything else. Hey, uh, so we can get off ours. How, I've got like six soapbox stacked <laughs> high. And I'm no, no, fall. this is a, okay. So this is a problem we talk about in Mormon feminism too, because women, women especially are like trained to do everything like service. Like that's what we're taught. We're the serving ones. We're the nurturing ones. And a big feminist mantra is women have got to get paid. You've got to get paid for your work. Well, I mean, I, I'm glad to hear you guys plugging this because as a psychologist in training, you better believe it that I'm going to be charging around $150 an hour. I mean, I'm not going to grad school for five years to not get paid. So, exactly. well, as long as you clean the chapel for free on Saturdays, you're good. So, so as you should be. And anyway, these are services we, we offer. They're subsidized. We have funds that we actually, even at that low cost, if there's people who are indigent and can't pay, we're doing everything we can to pay for them. And we are actually sponsoring several individuals who have very critical needs. Um, and we're giving them as many sessions as we can afford till the money runs out. And so... And again, I would like to point out, John and I are not making any money. I'm not making a salary off of this. I'm putting in this time. However, but that's not our issue right now. We're not having anyone support the services. So I'm assuming that means everybody out there is really mentally healthy right now. So congratulations. We are we are not abandoning the idea, um, and we're still working towards it. We're, we're looking at building a catalog of some more short-term things that we think will... Um, um, achieve more interest. But if there's those of you out there who have ideas or th- ways you'd like to help out, let us know. We believe strongly in helping people to move to more healthy places, better um, get their their post-religious identities kind of squared away and live healthy lives. That's what this is all about. Yeah, and if you are reluctant or hesitant, please contact me. We can set stuff up. I just feel like uh, our community... <laughs> This is a very Mormon thing. Our community needs you to step up and do this because if you don't, then John and I say, we look at the bottom line and say, no one's taking advantage of this, so let's close up shop. And so we need people to help keep this going forward. Right. I have chosen to live my life, oftentimes very publicly. I'm a very successful guy. But um, I like most successful people, Almost everything I do fails. And you guys get to see a lot of the failures. And I'm happy to keep failing. I'm happy to keep trying at this till we find something that works. And we want this to work. And if this doesn't work, we will keep trying. That It's not like we're going to take our ball and go home. We're going to go to the other court and try to find people who play on our level. Okay. All right. Um, Any other announcements? There's the the ongoing announcement, of course. I um, let it, let it fly um, two weeks ago that... Um, I'm bored with Mormonism. And here I am. What? Um, what? And I announced last week, we, and we have, we are, we're making progress, we're making strides. I have formed a selection committee. What's happening with this podcast, Mormon Expression, we built a great thing. We have a great number of downloads, um, um, a, a loyal and a wonderful audience and, um, and a studio here in Salt Lake City. Um, I am stepping out of the seat in 2015 out of the host chair. I'll probably still make an appearance from time to time, but I will be handing over to a new host. So we have a selection committee that is looking for a new host, and I have already seen some names. Some of these people don't even know that there are these names um, that I am getting excited about. I think we're going to be able to take this in new and exciting directions while keeping true to the spirit 
and um, the motherfucking zeitgeist of Mormon expression. So um, can we address? I've seen people asking if I'm going to host Mormon expression. Yes, um, Lindsay, you might want to address that now. First of all, I don't curse enough to host this podcast. I mean, I could work on that. I think that's something that could grow on me. But ultimately, I when hate the to mics break are it to off, she curses like a sailor. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's crazy. So, uh, no, uh, actually, I don't know if you guys know this, but I have a podcast. So I think I'm good in that arena. She, you do. You have Lindsay has a lot of irons and a lot of fires, and she does great things. She does great things for us. So Lindsay, you're officially announcing. That, that although you will be continuing participating with the Mormon Expression podcast, yes. you are declining the host chair. Yes, okay. I am. So there you have it. So we're still on the lookout to be considered. You have to live in Salt Lake City or at least be able to make it to the studio once a week um, for at least 40 weeks a year. Um, and, and not bring up rape and privilege every dang time. Oh, my God. Don't bring up rape and privilege every time. Yes. And... Um, <laughs> Are we are we going to rape or usually usually the Nazis come up before the rape? But uh, you, should we have a little bet on this tonight? Let's see. Well, you already lost. Um, <sighs> the, <laughs> yeah, um, but this is going to be. I'm looking for somebody, and the, and I have others who are helping me. I'm looking for somebody who can bring their own personality and their own way of doing it to the chair. So I don't want the person who's coming here to feel like they have to mimic. Or be like John Larson. Been there, done that, 270 episodes. We get it already. All right. So, um, let's, uh, let's, um, let's take it in a, in a, in a new direction. So if you at all think that you might be the right person, we want to hear from you. It's a paid gig. Well, maybe I'll reconsider then. <laughs> okay. Right. Should so, we get to the news? Sorry. Yeah. T- 30 minutes later, you can start your podcast. <laughs> okay. Well. Uh, let's, let's talk about the news. There's some interesting things that have happened this week. Uh, Misha and I were just talking about it because she, of course, lives in Provo mm-hmm. and you just got back. So do you want to cover the, our first news topic? Sure. So, um, today there was a kind of a buzz and, and energy at, on campus. Um, and today is a very historic day for BYU. Another rich, white, old, Male has been appointed and inaugurated today as the president of BYU. So, oh really? Nothing, nothing new. Um, very historic. Uh, Is it so. a general authority again? Kevin J. Worthen. Kevin J. Worthen. I I think he's a seventy, or he became a seventy with this. How long do you have to be out of the church before you stop saying everybody's middle initial? Is that is that take like a long time? <laughs> is that all right? Anyway, go on. John W. Larson. I don't know what your middle name is. I just, I just winged it. Um, I'm not going to say, but I will say that I was named after Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) We have the same middle name. You know what? There's a joke there, but fucking (laughs) no. (laughs) H H. (laughs) Good lord. Wow. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, young Charles. (laughs) Really. That's a, that's at least thirty dollars. I, I am blushing. <laughs> Can I pay PayPal? PayPal down. Yes, you everybody my, at home. You know my mother, and she <laughs> named me. I can, oh, I'm appalled. I don't know if I can recover. Uh, that's an unrecoverable error. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> well, let's move on. So that happened. And there's also this fancy women's conference in Europe happening right now. It's the Area Sisters meeting wait, wait, broadcast. Wait, wait. Did, my, did my question, I got distracted by potty mouth from Charles over there. Did, did, um, is he a general authority? Is- I, I believe he, he has been appointed as a general authority with this new title as well, oh, I believe. Oh. So she says title as she winks. That was cute. Hmm. I'm going to use general authority in air quotes then from now on when talking about uh, allegedly brother, a general authority brother were then. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, the, uh, Europe is doing this area sisters meeting broadcast. Yeah. That, this was the one that was really interesting because the flyer that went around shows the, it's the women's conference. And at the top of it, there's pictures of three men as yeah. the speakers. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, we're it's still being broadcast as we are taping this, but we are getting some lovely quotes from it. And one of them is this doozy of a quote from Elder Ballard. And I'm going to read the quote. And at first, it starts like the same old thing, but wait for it at the end. He just he drops a real nugget of gold there. So he said, The blessing I would ask our Heavenly Father to grant you, unto you individually and collectively would be that you will never, ever take lightly what you know to be true. That you will be pioneer as the first pioneers, women of great strength, power, and courage. That you will let your voices be heard. We cannot, we cannot meet our destiny as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in preparing this world for the second coming of the Savior of the world without the support and the faith and the strength of the women of this church. We need you. We need your voices. <laughs> I'm so sorry when I know what's coming. This is hilarious. They need to be heard. They need to be heard in your community, in your neighborhoods. They need to be heard within the ward councils and the branch council. Now, don't talk too much in those council meetings. Wait, wait, no, wait, wait. Oh, I, don't, I don't believe it. Just straighten the brethren out quickly and move oh my God. the work on. We are building the kingdom of God. I know. <laughs> it started out so good. I know. And then just crashed. Uh, sometimes and I think I've heard it all. And, well, I can't no, I'm serious. Talking. You guys, he said that Elder Ballard. So that that's the reports that we're getting. This is from a very credible source who um, has a press pass there. So anyway, fantastic, fantastic quote. So we need you. We just don't need you to talk too much. Anyway, I th- that's the best story ever. Do you guys have anything you want to say to that? That's no. That pretty much. Just no, don't don't not say much too to much. Say, yeah. Okay, uh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, another big Mormon story that came out this uh, week is that Mormon leaders will speak in their native languages at conference. Yeah, this was a big. This is a big one, right? This is interesting. We'll we'll see if they actually do it. Any the- bets on the language? I'm hoping for German. They are not going to let the Silver Fox speak in German. Be probably Spanish. I mean, the big challenge that they've had in the past for this is, you know, I can I can translate from whatever uh from english into a language but finding someone that can translate you know into so i'm listening and i can translate into afrikaans or i can translate it into but finding someone who knows the the one language that can then translate it into a second or a third language that becomes difficult so all of their talks have to be written in english first so that they can the people (laughs) that are translating them can can convert them. Yeah, if it's the way it was, I used to know a lot of the translators. So I served <clears throat> in American foreign speaking. I was Laotian speaking. So I, when I came back to Salt Lake, I was kind of connected. And I was in the linguistics um, program at BYU, so I was connected to that. At the time, 
the the talks were kept in a vault until one week before, um, and then they were handed to the translators. The translators had them for six or seven days before conference, um, so they could take a pass at at um, translating. My my favorite story from that, and I I I it's in my memory, so it might be half bullshit and lies, but it, it's a good story anyway. Um, they were talking. It was an Idaho General Authority, and he was talking about pulling pipe. Um, I, for those of you not from Idaho, look at Dallin. My husband's here today, and he's nodding. For pulling pipe is it doesn't rain in Idaho really that much, so they they they, they the the cowboys go out there and they take these pipes that are on these big uh, rollers. Cowboys. Dallin was eight years old when he started doing this. Dallin is a cowboy through and through. That's right. Even when he was eight, and they have to move pipe around. But let's say you're translating this in a Cambodian. And somebody saying pulling pipe, you know what exactly? Do you, I mean, <laughs> what do you translate? But snow, like, 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 there's a there's a lot of Hmong refugees that came to the to the United States. There's no word in the Hmong language for snow, and so when you have scripture say, "Oh, though your sins be as scarlet as white as snow," you know, it, it, it doesn't have any meaning. So they're getting better because there used to be all these Idaho hick uh, general authorities who would just talk in their own like about canning and stuff and you'd be translating that to Swahili, you know, it didn't make any sense. I mean, what were we talking about? I'm, stuck, I'm just stuck on pulling pipe. <laughs> <laughs> well, another, and just one more story and then we'll get into our topic. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard, and I'm sure this is no surprise, the church has joined in and probably got its own law firm to do so, asking the Supreme Court to hear the appeal of Utah gay marriage decision it's the same old stuff, but we do know that they're putting more money into writing these amicus briefs. Who, which I heard one report was they got a deal of like fifty thousand dollars. It was like the a deal, so anywhere from like fifty thousand dollars to half a million dollar or a quarter of a million dollars to write these things. Um, they're really concerned that this is going to affect uh, their first. Like they're wor- they're worried that the First Amendment right is going to shield or protect them. And, you know, I was reading online and I saw a really good comment that said, I'm not worried so much about, like, if I'm going to be forced to protect them. I worried more about me losing my job, my degree, or my temple recommend if I do support them. And I think that that's a very valid point. The church is so worried that the state is going to punish them if they don't support gay marriage. And yet, what does that mean? Utah? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. All but right. what happens to all of us who do support it and lose our businesses or lose your degrees or lose whatever endorsements? So clearly we aren't protected. Hmm. So that's a depressing note. The Mormon Expression Podcast is a listener-supported production. Visit our website, mormonexpression.com, to tip John's swear jar or become a subscriber and help keep the show running. Thank you very much. We can't do it without you. Okay, so we have a really fun topic tonight uh, in the spirit of the classic Mormon expression episodes. We're going to do a top 10 list. And this top 10 list is the top 10 lesser known scandals of Mormonism. And so what we're going to do is go down the the list, uh, 1 to 10. Um, They're not necessarily in order of scandal, but hopefully there will be things that you've never heard of. And we're going to briefly touch on them because there's going to be 10 but we encourage you to do further study. So, Bill, why don't you take us into our number one? So, number one is the Reed Smoot hearings. So that was that was pretty interesting. Um, 
Reed Smoot was an apostle who was elected as a U.S. senator in 1903, and when he went to be seated in 1904, there was a motion to deny him his seat uh, because of the argument that the Mormons were continuing to practice polygamy uh, post the 1890 manifesto. And what ensued was three years, three years of Senate hearings. It takes up over six feet on the, um, the U.S. Library of Congress's shelf of all of the transcripts <laughs> of, of this, getting into the detail. Uh, the most interesting point was when President Smith himself was subpoenaed and came and, and then lied to Congress about about his uh, his polygamy. Do you remember how old he was when he was on the stand? It's hilarious reading. Everyone needs to get the Joseph F. Smith excerpts, right? They're 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 fantastic. Yeah, it's he's just, a doting old fool on stand. Yeah, I mean, because it turns out he had several wives and eleven children from multiple wives post the eighteen ninety uh, statement. But but the claims were what what happened is at the end. By the end, they couldn't get two thirds of the senators to vote against him, and so he retained his seat. By a couple of votes, and so that's the that's the Reed Smoot hearing. We we have you know prophets lying about their practices, you know, in and it Congress. Really, like it really shaped the church. This this thing. I mean, it was that whole trope of the government out to get them. Yeah, you know, and this was in such a public way. It was like oh. such a public embarrassment to the church i i mean i don't think they framed it as an embarrassment at the time they really thought that they were pulling one over yeah it, it permeates mormon culture to this day well so this broke the back of the church's political machine because up until then and 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 the the the, the reed smoot was he a member of the 12 or was he just 70 he was he was the 12 apostle yeah he was the last apostle but because before then they would um the church would basically handpick the candidate to go to the Senate, right? Or to be, or to represent. So, so he got seated, but he was a non-polygamist. Right. Yeah. He was, he was picked specifically because he did not right. practice. Which is really important because polygamy was a loyalty test to get into high positions in the church before. There were, there were people, there were always people who didn't practice polygamy. But if you wanted to get up into the high positions, you had to have taken on multiple wives. And it was a requirement for a long time. They wouldn't let you have authority over a polygamist if you were a non-polygamist. Right. So, so suddenly the church had a power vacuum after statehood because all the power structure they've been grooming these inside families, they, uh, and then the next generation of leadership got kind of turned on its head. And, and then the smooth hearings, they were trying to expose the fact that the church was still playing a shell game. And this, this is where, um, post-manifest polygamy sort of comes to light. Yep. And, um, the, the one of the most damning things is up, up, up until the twenties. It, it's funny. They continue that there was an oath in the temple of vengeance against the state of Missouri. And that got read into the, um, into right. the Smoot hearings. Yeah. The venge, the, the blood of Joseph Smith. Right. Um, so, so, and the, you know, we talked about President Smith, um, you know, he got kind of cornered on what revelation meant and he gave sort of wishy-washy Gordon Hinckley answer. You yeah. Know? That's, that's the best answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they were, they were really fasting and they, and they really changed things in the church, probably more so than we 
given yeah. credit for, obviously for Lindsay. There's, there's, there's several really great books that go through this, and it's really worth your time to know. It's an important part of Mormon and Utah and American history. Yeah, no, there's a book. I have a volume at home. Um, that, it was published, I think, four or five years ago. It's just excerpts from the Smoot hearings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can probably get it through either Coford or Signature Books. They can track it down. And it's just got the best of, and you just read straight from the hearings. They're, they're, they're hilarious. I, I recommend it. We are going to be covering it on the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, but we're not there yet. We're still in the Utah period. So uh, let's go to number two. Bill, that's also you. Oh, yeah, the Kirtland Safety Society. That's another one that's that's always pretty interesting. 1835, uh, and, and Joseph and Sidney Rigdon are in Kirtland. They're in poverty-stricken. They come up with this plan to build their own bank, and they apply to the Ohio legislature to put a, bl- a bank together. They they're so confident it's going to go through that they order plates to print the money on that Oliver Cowdery brings back, and then they're denied. On the exact same day. Yeah. The day the plates show up, they get the denial. Right. And so what they do is they, they add the word anti in front of the word bank and then ING at the end. So With a little the, rubber stamp. Little, boop, yeah, boop, anti-banking boop. society on all of their notes. The thing that's really interesting was that I mean, it was very much a Ponzi scheme sort of a, of a thing where there was very little capital and they built this, this huge organization as valued at like $4 million, which was the bank. All of the other banks in Ohio combined were only about nine and a half million. And so it was this huge deal. Um, immediately after the bank gets in place, Joseph and Sydney get new homes. They've got new clothes. They're driving around in new carriages. And, but the banking commission is immediately, I mean, $4 million is a, is a lot. And so they began looking very carefully and, and it was, wasn't very long before this thing, this thing collapsed. Uh, and there was, uh, Joseph was on the hook for what would today be about $650,000. Uh, they scapegoated Warren Parrish, who was the uh, secretary at the time and tried to blame a lot of this on him. And he and Sydney flee Ohio in order to escape prosecution. And it, and this starts the whole, you know, whenever we talk about that quote that uh, Marlon Jensen is saying about the, there's never been so much apostasy today as there was in Kirtland. This is what fuels it because a lot of these people, a lot of these saints back their money. We have stories of widows, like giving all this money and never recovering it or people selling their property to back this up and they lose it all. The things that some of the really interesting things that happened were battles over the Kirtland Temple and, you know, people going in and, and, uh, barricading themselves in the temple so that they could claim it and other people trying to burn it down. And I mean, the, the, it was, it was, it caused a lot of dissension and, and significant uh, numbers of members of the church left to general authorities left to us. What, what I like in, in when you read church history or in the Sunday school, they'll, they'll talk about the guys going and tarring a feather, Joseph Smith and Kirtland. And then they suddenly skip ahead to Joseph and Sidney fleeing in the middle of the night. Um, what they don't talk about is that Joseph and Sidney were fleeing the members of the church. And um, my uh, one of my progenitors, um, Vincent Knight, who became the bishop in um, in um, Kirtland, was a, one of the bodyguards of Joseph Smith at the time. 
One of my favorite stories is there was a, the night that they fled, there was a meeting in the Kirtland Temple that got out of hand, and he actually tossed a guy through the fucking window of that temple. This is at a church meeting. You, you know, you, you, we whitewashed the, the history so much, but can you imagine what it takes to throw a man through a plate glass window? These guys were pissed because it was pure and simple currency speculation, busted the church to pieces, and these guys fled out left their whim, their wives and their children behind these prophets and got out on their own in the dark. So yeah. the fights yeah. in the temple are epic. Where, oh, the fights were where the fist fight. Joseph we're Smith's dad stands up and defending him and people jump up and they're swearing and they draw swords and they're trying to pull him physically out of the building and then William Smith comes in and grabs people and there's a fight in the church and they end up throwing everybody out into the street and just like are, Jesus did it yeah just, just, like, just like Jesus <laughs> it was it was amazing it's a restoration that. of all things <laughs> so, so, some of the stuff is sketchy but you know one of the favorite t- tales is they were doing just plain old fraud I, I can't remember the source but but, um, you know, they would take people into the vault because your currency needed to be backed and they didn't have enough stuff to back currency. So they filled boxes with sand and then laid money on top of them or, or things like that. Yeah. And I don't remember the, the source for that, but there were some shenanigans going on there and everybody knew it, you know. And that's why Joseph left Kirtland. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, the next one is you, Misha, number three. So we're going to fast forward in time a little bit. We're going to go to ni- uh, 1969. So kind of at the height of the uh, civil rights movement, the Black 14. Um, so this, what's going on this time, there's a lot of anti-war rallying, you know, among university students. There's a lot of civil rights activism going on. And of course, the church um, still has the priesthood ban fully um, in swing. And um, University of Wyoming is top number 12, their football team, number 12 in the nation. Very good team. So they have a lot of, um, you know, kind of a, a lot of power right now with an, and a voice and, you know, on this national stage of college football. And they are getting ready to play BYU. Well, BYU has already been, um, had a couple small protests kind of held against them. A few players from ASU, um, football players and track um, protesting the ban, right? Protesting the ban, um, saying we're not going to play BYU because of this this priesthood ban. And there were persistent rumors that the Black Panthers were going to descend on Salt Lake, yes. right? Yes, yes. Persistent, persistent rumors. Yeah. That the El- Elder Benson actually announced that in prior to a general conference, that there were busloads of blacks coming from Los Angeles to start race riots in Salt Lake. <laughs> and so the whole, s- black people? Wait, the, whole s- the whole Temple Square was surrounded by state police during a, <laughs> an entire general conference. Well, and, yeah, and actually, I mean, during that time, uh, off topic a little bit, but during that time, uh, Darius Gray had, you know, was on the inside with, you know, the, the 12. So they actually showed him, here's how you... Here's how you get out because we're going to be shooting black people. So here's, but you're, you're good and your family's good. So here's how you, here's how you get out. We'll show you all the back roads. So you'll be okay. But anyway, so, um, 14, um, black football players from the University of Wyoming, seven who are starters on the team, very, very talented athletes, um, got word from the head of the black student association that you know, here's what's going on with this team you're going to play. And they have this racist 
you know, policy, what are we going to do about it? So uh, a bunch of the students wanted to to protest BYU and the game and everything like that. Well, to show solidarity, 14 of the football players said, we'll wear black armbands. Okay, not a big deal. We'll wear black armbands. Um, we'll still play in the game, but we're going to wear black armbands. So they went to their coach, Lloyd Eaton, and um, went to his office. They had their black armbands, and they said, here's the deal. This is what we're doing to show solidarity for the Black Student Association who will be protesting the game. Well, he didn't really let them get very far. He said, I'll save you the trouble. You're all off the team. He dismissed all 14 of them from the team, um, which meant essentially I'm taking away your ability, you know, to play on the team, but I'm also taking away your education because they would lose their, their scholarships, wouldn't be able to go to school. Um, so, um, the students were like, well, this is ridiculous. We're fighting this. Sports Illustrated got a hold of the story. NAACP got a hold of the story. NAACP put in a, um, a suit against the university and against the coach uh, through the federal courts. It was first, it was thrown out, they appealed, um, and then it was thrown out a second time. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's kind of a, a BYU's like is the catalyst, right? So they're not directly the reason that these guys got thrown off the team. It's this, this joker of a coach, Lloyd Eaton, who in 1982 stood by his decision and said, I would do it again. And um, I guess he died a lonely old man in 2007. But several of the players went on to the NFL. See, um, kids, that's what happens. That's right. Mel Hamilton has kind of kept the story alive. I actually met him. They invited him uh, to BYU to talk about everything that happened. And ironically enough, his kids actually joined the church, which is kind of funny. And he's a little disturbed by But um, nevertheless... Um, he has kind of come to a, a peaceful place, but he keeps the story alive, and it's it's become quite quite. I the can't story tell at what's University worse: storming Temple Square gates, shaking the gates, and pushing the PR people down to get in, or going after football. <laughs> BYU football. People care about their football. That's right. Yeah, that's a that's a great one and an important one, and I think it's one we don't talk enough about because it did have huge. Huge effects. I mean, it was a huge embarrassment to the church. Yeah. And it really did sort of speed up this Absolutely. issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the, and the crazy thing is, so fans on, on both sides, um, of the, of the stadium. So BYU fans and Cowboy fans were shouting at the end of the game, we love Lloyd. So everyone was a big supporter of, of Lloyd and, and his decision to throw off Seven of his best athletes and and fourteen of his of his athletes. Uh, it's crazy. Wow, something to be proud of there. <laughs> okay, uh, Bill, do you want to take number four, the Mountain Meadows Massacre cover? Yeah, I get all the really good ones. Uh, <laughs> Mountain Meadows Massacre. So, eighteen fifty seven. You've got the Baker Fancher immigrant company from Arkansas making their way through Utah. They come through Salt Lake. Um, there was a lot of, there, there was certainly a lot of tension in the air. A lot of it had been created by Brigham Young and also because of the, uh, the troops that were stationed nearby. Um, some folks in that company claimed to have, uh, at least the rumor was that they had claimed to have been, uh, part of the group that had killed Joseph Smith. There's not really much evidence that that was the case, but that was the arguments being made. Anyways, the edict came from Brigham Young to not sell them any supplies. Um, they make their way south. They're trying to get supplies. No one will sell them. They get to Cedar City. Folks in Cedar City, um, a couple of them break down, 
and and give them some of the things that they need. Uh, and then there's it's not really clear whether this edict came from Salt Lake or if this was a, a local group that was just kind of acting on a lot of the kind of fire and brimstone t- conversations and talks that Deb Brigham Young had been giving. But uh, yeah, because like if a cop shoots a guy on the street, it's only bad if the chief ordered it, right? It's yeah. not bad if the cop. He's just a cop. What do we care if he plugs somebody in the chest, right? Right, right. Yeah. So, okay. so, so these are these are local leaders. Uh, they get together and they decide that they're going to take these guys out. And so, in uh, uh, Mountain Meadows, which is be- between um, Cedar City and St. George, there's a, a meadow where they had, they had stopped to graze their. They're animals for the night, and a, a group of men dressed as uh, Piot Indians. They, they actually tried to talk the Indians into doing this, and the Indians are going, I don't have anything to do with that. Uh, they dress as Indians. They go in, and they, they basically slaughter about 130 people, including all children above the age of seven. About about 12 kids, I guess, are are left behind, and they get, they get adopted uh, by locals. And so the military hears about this a couple of years later. They start doing an investigation, which is interrupted by the Civil War. But by the time they come back to the end, they do this full investigation. There's clearly evidence that a lot of, a lot of local folks are, are involved. They, they select eight, I think, local leaders, church leaders, uh, that get indicted. But at the end of the day, they offer up John Lee as a kind of as a scapegoat and he takes the whole, brunt of it and it ends up being executed for this and then you know recently they reinstated him and all of his uh temple blessings uh after the fact and yet the church has never once apologized at all for for this massacre yeah and the massacre is like the well-known part but the lesser known scandal is like this cover-up like you said that brigham young i mean no one can prove exactly that he gave the order, but what we can prove is he helped the cover-up. Yeah. We do know that. We know that big names like Jacob Hamlin was involved in covering that up. John D. Lee. They forged all these documents. They made it seem like it was the Indians. They passed it on to Indians. Even up until just, I mean, recent, very, very recent modern history that they had pinned it on the Indians. Right. And Will Bagley says that absolutely no Indians were involved. Yeah. I mean, only at... Had they received some of the goods that were that were from this, but they didn't they didn't participate as all as near as we can tell. Uh, what's amazing is everything you can pop, every cliche you can come up with on cover up happened. Like you're you're talking about, um, they buried and reburied bodies. They they um, forged documents. They moved people around. They gave hush money. They, you know, for a long time, J- um, um, John Lee of course, was moved over to Lee's Ferry, right? And Which was a little crossing out in the middle of nowhere where they were trying to keep him. And then they tried to put all on on him, you know? And and then they tried to cover Meanwhile, that up. Meanwhile, telling him, like, don't worry, don't worry. It's going to be okay. We've got you. We'll protect you, according to Lee. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and and it's just, it just everything they could do to... Throw sand in the fed, Fed's eyes. and if Everybody you- disappeared. There was like, they, they went off, they got called on missions to different places. There was nobody left behind that could talk about it. The cover-up continues to this day. I know I'm a broken record on this one, but if you go to the site that the church owns, 
there's a monument there yeah. that there's a plaque on it that says, in this place, Gordon B. Hinckley erected a monument. I'm not making Which that up. Which is true. It's not it's like they lied about true. that. That's a big monument to the fact that Gordon B. Hinckley erected a big fucking monument on the place there used to be a monument. And and you have to go up to the state site up on the hill above to find out what happened. Yeah. The cover-up of what happened at Mountain Meadows continues today on that sacred spot where the church continues to refuse um, to uh, play nice. The, well, interesting. It's uh, September 11th. 1857. Yes. It was a 9-11. The first 9-11. It's coming up in a few days. Yeah. And don't bring it up in seminary. When, <laughs> when I was in seminary, I, I learned about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I was probably 14 or 15 or something. I don't know where I learned about it, but I learned about it. And so I got up there and I told my seminary class about it. And uh, <laughs> and you it. should have seen my, my teacher's face. I mean, he almost lost his shit. I mean, it was, he was like, <laughs> sit down, Misha, sit down. And I was like, well, I mean, this is, you know, some messed up stuff. We killed kids. We killed, and then, and then we, sounds like we blamed it on somebody else, you know, and yeah, don't, so don't bring it up in seminary if any worst, seminary students are listening. Worst massacre in American history on American soil. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, well, Mormons. I'm, I'm not counting like American Indians who that was, that was, those were never massacres. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're actually going to talk about that coming up, but, um, next it's me and I'm going to be talking, this podcast has it all for you. It's got murder and intrigue and sex. And I'm going to talk about sex. This is my favorite one on the list, by the way. Okay, so we know that several apostles have been excommunicated. But I'm going to I'm gonna read you Many, many apostles. Many apostles. I once tried to calculate. I think, I can't remember the number is, like 20% of anybody who's ever been in the Quorum of the Twelve has been excommunicated. That's something high like that. I just made that up, but it follows the Pareto principle, like 80-20, right? So it's got to be true. Anyway, go on. Well, go on. Doug Gibson wrote about this, and I'm going to bring you in with a paragraph that he wrote because I it's great. He says, On November 11th, 1943, LDS apostles Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold B. Lee gathered with Salt Lake City police officers, including Chief Reed Vetterelli, outside the small Center Street apartment of elderly Anna Sophia Jacobson. Okay, so... These guys, these apostles, are with the police outside this old woman's house. The apostles and officers burst into the home, breaking the door down, according to some accounts, and discovered Apostle Richard R. Lyman, (gasps) 74 years old, in bed with Jacobson, who was not his wife. After gathering evidence, the two apostles reported back to J. Rubin Clark, first counselor to LDS President Heber J. Grant, who handled most of the church's duties because Grant was ill and had ordered this raid. A day later, Lyman was excommunication, excommunicated for, quote, violation of the Christian laws of chastity. Lyman was excommunicated um, for adultery, and this is not unique to apostles. But his was unique in some ways. First of all, I mean, they were elderly when this happened. And he was married to a woman named Annie. Wait, 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 wait. hold on. No, 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 Good no, no. for that, okay, right? Okay, <laughs> that did sound bad. I'm sorry. Lyman still what, had it. <laughs> what I meant was it's unique in that he... Because I heard Harold B. Lee was never the same after he saw what freaky shit going down in that little bungalow. <laughs> it's true. It's true. What I meant was... Their relationship had lasted a long, long time. Yes, and the family, if you talk to the Lyman family, um, they believe that um, Richard had married 
Um, the, the, uh, this, uh, what, what's her name? Anna Sophia. Anna Sophia, yes. He and was the- assigned to meet her in the 20s because she had been excommunicated for living in polygamy and he was supposed to bring her back into the fold, which I guess he took to mean something else. I just had a really <laughs> dirty joke come to mind that I will just pass right on by. Okay, go on. So, okay, so according to his wife, Amy Cassandra Brown, um, it's said that Lyman, of course, the way that I'm reading this, the way that Mormon writers read about this, they kind of place the blame on her. They say this happened because after the birth of their second child, she tells him, she tells her husband, um, we will no longer be having sex. We're going to remain celib- celibate. And although they got along really well, the people are saying that this is part of it. Um, they're also saying that his son died of what might have been a suicide at age 35, which turned his... His sort of missionary work relationship. And he just had to go fuck. Yeah. I mean, th- let's face it. There's no other recourse. Well, I mean, what is this? You know what I love about the church manuals about this? They never mention why he's excommunicated. Like, um, they could spice those things up a little bit. You got an apostle getting freaky. This, this is good freaky stuff. Freaky because he was doing missionary work, right? He, yeah, he missionary. Did missionary yeah, style. He rec- <laughs> Lyman recalls Jacobson, his, his, uh, second wife, plural wife, his mistress, whatever you want to call her, as wonderfully unselfish and helpful. And, um, right? And he had this relationship with her for a long time, and it said it became sexual after the death of his son. But um, what is really interesting is, like you said, the reaction. So this is another thing that makes it different than some of the other apostles that have been asked for sex. Doug Gibson says, quote, there is some mirth in the idea of apostles in suits breaking in on the love nest of two senior citizens. However, by Berger's account, the affair shook the quorum. In his diary, Spencer W. Kimball writes, quote, to see such great men as the members of the quorum all in tears, some sobbing, all shocked, stunned by the impact of was an unforgettable sight. And, um... Then it becomes this this big like controversy for unforgettable <laughs> in so, every way. Right. Uh, this story just warms my heart. I, you can, I'm all smiles on this one. This is okay. So so Lyman tries to get rebaptized for years. Right. He tries to get rebaptized, but uh, we do know that every time he went in to plead his case, he would use it to criticize his colleagues, the members that excommunicated him. According to his colleagues, is that his account? No, 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 no. Mm. This is, uh, this is the Bergera's accounts. Um, there's a great dialogue article that talks all about this. So he dies a lay member of the church without priesthood, without endowments and without ceilings. And we do know that when Amy Brown Lyman, his wife was informed of the, of the adultery and the excommunication, her exact words were, I do not believe it. I do not believe it. She was the leader of the LDS Church's Women's Auxiliary, the Relief Society. So she was a high person up in the church as well. So you can imagine the double impact of this. And she would stay with him and she told family members, she, she said everyone, quote, um, he was a, in every way an ideal husband and father other than that. So she did stay with him. Um, we don't know what happened to Jacobson. Other than she outlived him, but we can't figure out if she was rebaptized. But like you said, there's some talk that he and her decided when they formed this connection, when he was, you know, re-fellowshipping her to the church, that they were going to be sealed to each other. Because, of course, this is the 40s. 
Um, and polygamy were not, I mean, we were just a few generations from, so they, they figured polygamy would reinstate itself and that their ceiling would be recognized in the next life. So I, I oftentimes talk about smoking guns and how there aren't any. Then I talk about more smoking guns and I deny there are any. Here is one, actually. I can prove to you the church is not true from this. Are you ready? Let's hear it. This uses theories of um, like genetic dominance and um, population growth. All right. So according to the Doctrine and Covenants, if somebody who who um somebody who disobeys their priesthood or sins their priesthood immediately is ineffective it doesn't work anymore if you're sinful you don't get to keep doing the office and having the benefits of it just by 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 virtue of the office right so in the church you need to be ordained by an individual or two individuals if one of those people or any one of those witnesses or other people that are in, in necessary in the ordinance do not have the priesthood, the ordinance is not effective. If the ordinance is effective, the church is not true because the church relies on the idea of authority. It has to have authority to do the, um, the ordinances. If anybody could do them, then any Protestant church is right. That's not the case. You have to have authority. Lyman, according to best accounts, was banging her for at least 20 years while serving as an apostle, going around, ordaining stake presidents and bishops. Every single bishop and stake president he ordained would, according to the church, have to be invalid, and none of those people actually had the office, making every single action that they made under that authority, every baptism, every ordinance, also ineffective. And with creeping population genetics, with a if you think about a dominant gene, whenever one of these people came in, if there's two people laying their hands on their head, one of them can trace anything back to Lyman, bang, it's out. By this time, if Lyman was the only person ever as a general authority to mess up his priesthood, then by, by now uh, we could mathematically figure it out, probably 97% of the, of the priesthood is out. If the church is true, and Lyman was indeed fucking his uh, mistress. Or wife. Second wife. Second wife. wife. Whatever. Spiritual wife. Just taking all the fun out of it. Um, <laughs> it's done, right? Let, no, let me tell you. Where's the flaw I, in my logic? I, right here. You ready for this? That makes perfect sense for all of you who say, why does God answer some people's prayers with lost keys and not others? If you've ever had a priesthood blessing that didn't work, there's your answer. You, some, you were tainted by the... <laughs> The Lyman taint. Yes, I, the Lyman taint. I, I have, I've now named this. <laughs> I'm going to write this up. The Lyman taint. And I'm going to explain how the church is not it true. It sounds like an STD. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so i The Lyman I'm, taint. Write it down. You heard oh it from gosh. me first. So I'm the next on the list. And I wanted to talk about an unknown massacre, the Gunnison Massacre, and the Steptoe Expedition. And I'll be, I'll be quick about this. But... Uh, the Mountain Meadows was not the only massacre. There are plenty of um, white settlers that would die. And, of course, like Bill mentioned earlier, there were many, many indigenous people that died, and we just don't care about. But uh, the Gunnison Massacre happened when, I mean, it's a really complicated thing, but John Gunnison came to do this expedition, and he was he and his men were slaughtered by the Indians. And he had written a book 
it wasn't an expose. It was just a guidebook about Mormons that was set to have really made the leadership mad. So the rumor is that the church kind of encouraged and helped facilitate the Indians in slaughtering him. Of course, this sends out, as they die, in these really brutal ways, um, their bodies are, like, mutilated and everything. Um, uh, Colonel Steptoe is sent out by the government. And the reason why this story is so great, Steptoe expedition bec- comes before Johnston's army. And not everyone talks about Steptoe. Steptoe is great. Because Steptoe comes in to investigate this murder. They camp in Salt Lake City. And... The church has this huge problem with their women that they want to marry up during this Mormon Reformation period falling in love with soldiers. The church lost a hundred women that left with the soldiers, including Heber C. Kimball's wife. So Heber C. Kimball has this great quote and he just goes, he, it just makes him rageful. And he, he will talk forever after about Gentiles and the soldiers luring the women away. But the best story, and I've talked about this on my podcast, but a lot of you I'm sure haven't heard of it, is about this young soldier who, um, is part of the Steptoe expedition. And of course, when they come to Salt Lake City, they, they're like, oh, the Mormons are really nice to us. They're inviting us to these dances. Of course, they're spending money. And so the Mormons are trying to be nice at first. And, um, there's a soldier named Sylvester Mowry and he sees a woman at one of the dances and he says, I'm going to tell you the quote. He says that she's the prettiest woman I have seen yet. Her husband is on a mission and she is as hot a thing as you could wish. I'm going to make the attempt, and if I succeed and don't get my head blown off by being caught, shall esteem myself some. Well, the woman that he fell in love with was none other than Mary Ann Ayers Young, who happened to be Brigham Young's oldest son's wife. Now, Brigham Young's son is on the mission, He falls, and uh, Sylvester falls in love with Mary Ann Ayers Young, and they have this brilliant story of, like, secretly meeting in these trysts, and he, he claims that she said, quote, um... Here's another quote from Mary. There are many great disaffected persons here, many women who rebel against the plurality wife system. Brigham's daughter among them. She says Salt Lake City needs only to be roofed in to be the biggest whorehouse in the world. Anyway, he tries to run away with her. It's thwarted. She gets locked up in the lion house. He decides, do I risk it? Do I go to try to rescue her? He gets word from Steptoe that there's a hit out on him from Brigham Young for his life, so they move him all the way out to Skull Valley. So he takes comfort in two teenage sisters 14 and 13 who he eventually takes to california with him so that is the story of gunnison massacre and steptoe expedition women can't resist a man in uniform right three snaps for for a soldier well we do know that people wanted to get the hell out of salt lake city this is a uh, my favorite is uh, if i remember the numbers correctly and about a third of the Willie Martin handcart company at first break of snow. Like these guys have been starving, right? Like in April, it was already still cold. They started heading back east, right? And I think, I think, um, I think some historians estimate as many as 50% of everybody who ever came here on the plains went back. And okay, you have, you have reports of, uh, forts, uh, Gentile forts in the north receiving hundreds of, uh, saints coming and they would because brigham young controlled all of their property they would come bleeding and barefoot because they were trying to escape in the dead of night because they worried about 
Uh, what I the Navu Legion, the Mormon this, militia, the Danite. Absolutely, this was by plan. I've talked about one of the sins of the um, mar- the handcart companies is if no matter how rich you were, you had to give it all to the church and guaranteed that when you walked into Salt Lake City, you were absolutely poor. And Brigham used this as a control mechanism to send these people out to these little settlements, and they really had no way to get out. And so a soldier comes in. I don't care if he looks like Mr. Toad. He's going to have like 14 young things all over him because they want the the fuck out of Salt Lake City. Yeah. And I, I also want to point out Steptoe Expedition is critical in understanding Mormonism because when you understand the fear that it puts in these leaders like Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young who are directly affected, this jealousy and how women get carted around as this, you know, as this leverage for this how they get so scared of outsiders and Gentiles. It might help us understand how we shape our rhetoric now about the world and all of that. So on a positive note, you know, a lot, a lot of the, um, a lot of the general authorities, the 12 would try to keep a wife and a house in each of the cities that they'd gone the circuit of. There must've been a lot of free loving going around at the time. I mean, you know, like if, if, if you're married to some like old guy up in Salt Lake City and you're down in St. George and you know, most most of the records show that that uh, um, women who multiple uh, plural wives quite often had boyfriends or men on the side who of were course. who were taking care of them and helping them mostly because they were they had nothing right they they were not being supported financially and and there would be someone who would reach out to them and and whether they were sexual or not sexual, they 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 formed attachments to men other than the man that they were married to. Yeah, what well, one of my ancestors was um, married by Heber. Um, she was she was married to Joseph, and then Joseph died in Heber, and she lived up in Weber County. And the family believers, you know, just talk about never gave her a red cent. You know, she was just in poverty. She was taken care of mostly by her son and other the charity of the community. And here, you know, they have all these wives, and he never visited her once. She, she was an old widow. You know, he didn't care about her. This is where sugar daddies got started. Like, your, your guy on the side that was, you know, giving Except him, for giving these sugar daddies money. were really poor. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think it's better than having, like, a really poor monogamous husband or a really just, poor just polygamous husband. companionship. Just having somebody that cares oh, about yeah, you. Oh, yeah, it must have been miserable. You know, can you imagine being out, like, in, like, Parowan or something, you know, in a little... Well, yeah, the, the, the Heber Z. Kimball or Brigham Young would own a, a, a farm somewhere out and he would just send a couple of his polygamous wives out there with their kids and they would run the place, uh, and, and be completely isolated. It was a, it was a very, very hard life. Very lonely life. Well, let's move on to number seven. That's you, Bill. Okay. The, the, um, Brigham's Brewery and, uh, the, so this one's really pretty interesting. Um, there was a Brigham had uh, there. There was a he wanted to corner all the market right on on all of the goods that were sold in the area, and he was he was a consummate uh, shyster businessman in in a lot of ways. One of my favorite stories is uh, a man came to him and had asked for some guidance. He had he had, had a plan to bring in. Um, a wire nail machine and he was going to make wire nails and people could use them to build homes and all these sorts of things. And he laid his whole business plan out for uh, Brigham and Brigham Young looked at it and said, no, no, the Lord wants you to make buttons. And so the guy says, okay. And he buys a button 
business and, and goes broke quickly. And Brigham Young then corners the nail, the, the wire nail business for the entire area and makes a fortune. Uh, same way with, uh, uh, distilleries. The thing that's really interesting is I was looking on the, um, the fair site and they just say, you know, yes, there was whiskey here, but Brigham Young didn't own any of it. And they've got a quote from him saying, oh, I, I never, I never owned a distillery. Um, but the reality is that, uh, in, in, um, 1860, what is it? 1867, I guess. 1869, right when the, the, by, by 1869, there were 37 distilleries in the Salt Lake area, all owned by Mormons, one, um, some by, uh, Brigham Young. Uh, the, the whiskey, the, the, the one that's, that's gotten most notoriety is a, a brand called Valley Tan, which was, uh, Valley Tan was that the name came from, there was tanneries and they, they would, they would create these, these tanned goods and every, and it became a common name for locally produced goods. Anything that was Valley Tan was locally produced good. It was the name of a newspaper. It was also a name of a very, uh, popular brand of whiskey made from wheat and potatoes of all things. And they would, and so there was a, a lot of this that, that was sold and they sold it in ZCMI. So the ZCMI mercantile. Through prohibition too. Yeah. You could buy large quantities of whiskey in prohibition because there was medicinally accepted. Right. So, so they sold, uh, he sold, they sold this in ZCMI. They sold whiskey and coffee and tea and tobacco all through the ZCMI to, to block these out. And the reason why they, they kind of shut down around 1869, the local distilleries is because they, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed and they could bring it in at a much cheaper price than they could produce it locally. And so it kind of killed the local distillery business, but they continued, they continued to sell it. One of the most tragic stories around this whole thing is that during the, the Willie Martin Handcart Company, there, they come in there, there's the snows are coming and the, the, the handcart company starting to get bogged down. Right behind them was a wagon train that Brigham Young had ordered that's coming through and they get to, um, Fort Bridger and he sends a note to Brigham saying, the, the weather's terrible. Uh, what are we going to do? And the, the note had to have gone past the folks in the, the Willie Martin Handcart Company. They had to have known those people were out there. Um, and Brigham Young says, no, no, you've got to bring those through, through the storm, bring the wagon train on. And included in it was a, a steam engine that he had and 10,000 gallons of whiskey. Uh, which if they had offloaded those, they could have carried the whole Martin handcart company into Salt Lake on. But the whiskey had to get through, uh, in order to, to make that happen. And that's a, that's one of my, it's just a terrible story. <laughs> You're going to say favorite, a, but you, can't you can't say favorite. It's a terrible, <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible thing. Um, but, but whiskey was a, you know, a, a vibrant part. And, and, and alcohol consumption in, in Utah has been a, a part of the culture here for a long time. My, my father-in-law grew up in Duchesne, Utah, and he tells stories of as a kid, there being steak dances and they bringing out the big metal wash buckets filled with ice and filled with soda and beer. Uh, and that's, well, th- this is recent. Th- this is a church PR at its best. Alcohol and the church, especially out in the West, has a long stayed tradition. As a matter of fact, if you go down to cities like Ephraim and go gratiate yourselves with the local bishopric and go to their deer camp mm-hmm. when they go deer hunting in the fall, 
I guarantee you, you'll get some beer served up there. There's been a long-standing tradition that lasts till today of believing Mormons going deer hunting and drinking alcohol. This still goes on today. Yeah, it's that great joke, right? You always bring two Mormons with you when you go fishing because if you only bring one, they'll drink all your beer. <laughs> right. Now, the Salt Lake and Pro- the Provo people don't do this, and they think the rest of the church doesn't drink booze. Um, but, but you know, like that. if you read the manifest for what you were supposed to bring over across the plains, you know, it had coffee and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't until the Reformation in 1857. And I, I think Will Bagley has joked that the church... It's whatever Brigham Young's current attitude about his chewing tobacco was. That's what the church's policy on on tobacco on sure. on on the word of wisdom. But yeah, it was really lax until um, really prohibition and this search for identity afterwards. Um, but before that, like nobody cared, and yeah, it's all Heber J. Grant. Yeah, yeah. So so it was the the word of wisdom was really a guideline and stayed that way up until like post World War Two. Yeah. Well, we have a, we have only three left, so we gotta move through these. And there's so many of these, we could do like a follow up and do like another top 10, cause we're missing, there's so many great stories out there. But number eight, I'm gonna talk about, this is Madame Mountford. This is one of my favorite stories of all time. You know, of course, the polygon, the manifesto ends in 1890, as Bill was mentioning. Um, but that, of course, didn't stop plural marriages. High-ranking Mormon officials, including prophets, were secretly marrying women. And there was a woman named Madame Lydia Mountford. And, and back in this time period, these speaking circuits <coughs> excuse me, were really, really popular. Uh, people would go on these lecture series. And this woman, Lydia Mountford, would go and speak. And she came to Salt Lake City and she spoke in um, 1897. Okay, so remember, this is 1897, and President Woodruff records attending her lecture on February 7th, 1897. The first 90 references to her in his diary take place during the next 18 months. By April, he's recording frequent private or personal talks with her in the First Presidency office, and she was at dinner at his home. And basically, um, she he just becomes obsessed with her. And of course he's married already. And it's said that, uh, he goes offshore in San, Fr- San Francisco. He follows her to San Francisco, marries her in the waters of the ocean. So it's technically not illegal to take on this plural wife. So there's a whole story International there. Water. International water. Yeah. So there's a whole story. We're running out of time, but yeah, that is the story of Madam Lydia Mountford. Okay, so Misha, do you want to take us yeah. in with number nine? So number nine, another another madam. So we have the son of Brigham Young and Margaret Pierce, B. Morris Young. So Brigham Morris Young, um, he was he served a couple missions to Hawaii. He was married to Lorenzo Snow's daughter, and he started the first young men's organization. And he was a cross-dressing singer. Um, when he returned from his second mission, he started cross-dressing and he went by the, the pseudonym, uh, Madam Petrini. And he would go out to Salt Lake and he would sing and he had a very convincing falsetto, I guess. And people just loved Madam Petrini and her lovely voice and Google image search it. It's brilliant. It's, I think it's the cutest thing ever, actually. <laughs> yes. Like, I'm like, oh, it's so cute as Madam Petrini. He, I know. Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, everyone has a weird kid, right? So Brigham Young, of course, had it. But had, of had course, totally kid. socially acceptable at the time. Yeah. Like, 
it was never it was never looked down on. They were applauded him for his talents. So. Yep. In the nineteenth century, well, I I don't know when when did it change over like in a Shakespearean play that women would start playing women's roles. It wasn't. I don't know that you're looking at me. I I well, well, don't from know. a Shakespeare perspective that 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 contribution. Tradition it, key for a long time. It would have been all men for a long, long, long time. Well, you, you, were you, seeing women. Women in, you were seeing women in uh, in in roles in, in New York and some of the traveling groups would have women, women and stuff like that. Women had callings in the Utah period. But there were actresses. there were mm. but there were clearly this this sort of thing was uh not uncommon but uh he, uncommon he was enough. Really good at what he did, so Okay, last number 10. This is one that people know, but we don't talk a lot about, and it's slavery in Utah. So it's a huge topic, and I'm sad we don't have a lot of time, but I'll just give you the gist of it, and then you can go read about it. So in 1851, Utah was the only Western territory where blacks were held as slaves, and it was one of the few places on Earth that we know about where black people and Indian slavery occurred simultaneously. And, of course, we know the famous uh, three black slaves that came over the first wagon company in 1847. Yeah, let's stop there and, and review that because this gets the f- initial camp of 140, 150 people that had three slaves with them. Yeah, and Not actually— Not freed slaves, slaves. Yes, uh, and if, if you go downtown, there's supposed to be a monument honoring Brigham Young and his colored servants. It's still on the plaque. Uh, the, the three slaves were Greenflake, Harkley, and Oscar Crosby. So they come, and of course this practice was never widespread. Um, m- some pioneers held on to African American slaves until 1862 when Congress abolished slavery in the territories. And there's this letter, uh, that was just been released in the Brigham Young letters where a woman's asking if she should sell her slave or not. She's asking Brigham Young, do I sell my slave? And he was like, no, keep your slave. He's a good guy. So, um, there's didn't, all this kind didn't of going he get, Wasn't it Green Flake that was given to Brigham Young as tithing payment? Yeah, I was going to mention that, 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 yeah, there was a slave trade through the tithing house, um, which is fascinating in and of itself well, on and many, many levels. We have the, the great story of the woman um, who was sealed to Joseph Smith as a servant in the eternity. servant, right. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that could take its own podcast. It's a fascinating and story. There's a great book out there. You can still find it at DI by Clarissa Young called Brigham Young at Home. And, um, she talks. It's just, it's a wonderful book. And it was written, it was finally published in the forties, I think, when still, you know, it was okay to talk about the darkies and that sort of stuff. So, but you'll, you'll read about her talking about the slaves and how she interacted with the slaves and how Brigham had them. Because I, I was always taught when I was young that Brigham would get slaves. Yes, but he'd always free them, but it wasn't actually the case. Yeah. Yeah. And the census of 1850 reports 26 slaves in Utah and 1860, there were 29. And you know, those figures are kind of questionable, but, uh, so anyway, so that was. Wait, is that, that's, is that African American? These are African American slaves. Cause there were tons of Indian yeah, slaves. Yeah, so we're going there. So, okay. so when we talk about slavery, people like to think of traditional slavery, right? We, America has a terrible history with this, but Mormons have a particular history with Indian slavery. What we don't talk a lot about in this country is the Indian slave trade, which was going on for centuries, ever since the, you know, conquistadors came in and subjugated this entire well, I mean, let's, people. Let's be clear. The Indian slave trade 
predated the the um, white right. Um, and it's, I mean, it's horribly, horribly violent. You have what basically by the time the the saints arrive in Utah, you have tribes, certain tribes, and in our case in Utah, it would be the Ute tribes. Uh, subjugating other tribes, less weaker tribes. So the Utes were famous slave traders in Utah, and they were vicious and ruthless. And they would mostly uh, sell Paiutes, sometimes Navajo, but Paiutes were the weakest and they were the poorest. And so, of course, they would come and um, sell these these slaves to settlers. And Brigham Young, it, there's, you know, contradicting statements, but the gist is that Brigham Young encouraged for a time the saints to buy the Indian slaves to help them. Now, of course, if you are offended, turn off your radio. This is a trigger warning right here, but there are terrible stories that the Indians would do things like one of the famous stories is um, a ute slave trader brings them to the Mormons outside the Mormon gate forts. He has two kids. He says, buy them. And the Mormons say, no, that's bad. We're not going to buy those children. And so he takes one of the little kids and smashes his head against a rock and says, okay, do you want, this is what happens if you don't take them. So they said, no, 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 we'll buy the girl. We'll buy the girl. So they buy the girl. And, uh, of course the Utes are said to have camped outside the forts and torture the little children, uh, with hot pokers into their wounds and let them scream all night for the Mormons to buy them. So, of course, it was seen as this sort of benevolent practice with Mormons buying Indians. Now, of course, Mormons would buy Indians, but uh, and sometimes they would take them on as their wives, but they would always be seen as lesser. And there is controversy, but in my opinion, from what I've read, these people were almost always taken in as indentured servants. So they might have bought them and raised them as children, but they were always expected to work and be lesser. Yeah, all the, time. We, the the whole culture, right? Uh, the word squaw is a Shoshone word that means vagina. And, and you see Mormon women writing about squaws, right? Well, Squaw Peak, right there in Provo, right? And, and so, Mormon women would use that as a pejorative to call other Mormon women, right? Yikes! Yeah, so there's a huge, terrible history with Mormon and Indian slave trade, and it's something that everybody should read about. And of course, that's not to belittle the the slave trade in Utah with African Americans, because that's absolutely a critical part of our history too. So I think that's all we got our top ten. Oh well, ending uh, on a high note. Yeah, thanks. Wow, what a well, downer. Well, I want to. <laughs> I I can't let this go without the, my the one that I'd mentioned before. It, it, Wait, I'm save it, go, save it. Can, can we come back and do another ten? Uh, it would be my pleasure. Can okay, you save I'll it? save it. There's right. some good stuff. Some pretty awesome. I've got stuff. some good ones too. I, yeah. What about like? Stop. No. The, no. Well, thank you for listening. Do you want to? Do you want to close it? Can we tease that we'll have more prostitution in the next oh, one? Gosh. Stop yes. it, John. Okay, well, All right. thanks, everybody. And uh, go ahead and make a donation, support Whitefields, and uh, thanks for listening. Have a good night. Thanks. The Mormon Expression Podcast is recorded live before a studio audience in Salt Lake City on Tuesday nights at 6.30. Come down and join the audience, take part in the podcast, and meet John and the panelists. The Mormon Expression Podcast is produced by the Whitefields Educational Foundation. Visit us online at whitefieldseducational.org to find out about our counseling services and other special events.